The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. I am going to dispense with introductions. You know who these people are. It's just we get right to it. Other than to say that, that certainly, and I can stay due to unexpected, I'm reading this, it's like Jay Powell at a Fed meeting. I'm reading the answer. Due to unexpected scheduling change, we have a change in our lineup today. Many of you have heard of this. The IMF Managing Director, uh, Dr. Gurgieva, and the Minister of Morocco, uh, Nadia Feta, are unable to join us today. Uh, the IMF will be more than ably represented by the first Deputy Managing Director. We are thrilled that Dr. Gopinath uh, could be here. You did, I'm sure you'll do better with Martin Wolf yesterday, but thank you so much uh, for, for showing up. Let's get to it. And um, you, sh you should be in the green room in back where uh, these four worthies are telling me what to do. So we're going to start with that. And Dr. Gopinath said, we have to look at the blue book. We have to look at the nuances of their new economic outlook in these times of fragmentation. What is the view that the IMF has right now? Dr. Gopinath? Thank you, Tom. I'm very happy to step in for Kristalina and to join these uh, impressive women on this panel. In terms of the outlook, we see a mixed picture. So on the one hand, you have resilience, which is you have an environment where many countries are close to full employment, tight labor markets. You're seeing inflation coming down. A year ago, it was way too high, and now it certainly has come down a long way since then. And we've also seen that the core of the financial system has held together well. Now, if you asked us a year ago whether this would be possible when interest rates go up by so much, in the global economy, I think many people would say, well, that would be really hard to accomplish. So I think we should first acknowledge that resilience. But that said, we are looking at a global outlook that has weak growth. Now, growth is weak now because of all the tightening in policies. But what is troubling is the weak growth looking into the medium term. So we have growth projected around 3% into the next several years well below the average that we've had over the last couple of decades, which was around 3.8%. Second, inflation has come down, but the job is not done yet. You still have sticky services inflation, core inflation. It is going to be a bumpy road, and that's going to be a challenge for policymakers. And importantly, we live in a world of a large number of shocks, geopolitical events, the conflict we're seeing in the Middle East, the consequences that could have for energy prices, debt levels are at record high levels at the same time that we are in this higher for longer interest rate environment. So there is a lot uh, for us to watch carefully, and that could go wrong, and that's very important uh, to keep in mind. Thank you. Uh, Director General, let me go to you. I'm, as I do in everything I do, I'm, I'm gonna give you some reading uh, points and also essays and articles to read. Of course, Dr. Goryeva 
has a wonderful essay on fragmentation. We'll get to that in a moment uh, in foreign affairs. But equally important and more strident and more assertive is the Director General's essay on world trade. It harkens back, for some of you that know Catherine Mann of the Bank of England, it harkens back to Catherine Mann before Citigroup at Brandeis. And I say Director General, and I know you want to talk here about the current trade focus, but the heart of your work is a route to interdependence, not overdependence. And that exactly gets to the emotion we're at right now, isn't it? Yes, we've, uh, thank you, Tom. I think what we're trying to say is that um, during the past few crises we've seen and we're still in, we've seen the vulnerability of supply chains. And um, that vulnerability has led to some conclusions that we think we need to think through again. Some people have concluded that supply chains are so vulnerable, we need to reshore everything to ourselves, or we need to produce with friends or those who have similar politics as we do. And yes, some of that will happen. Um, they've concluded that trade is the problem. But what we want to say at the WTO, our analysis has shown that the vulnerabilities come from over-concentration in some supply chains and over-concentration of production in some geographies. Mm. If that is the root of the problem, then to build resilience, we need, yes, to deconcentrate and diversify those supply chains. And we are arguing that a good way to do it is not just to do it with your friends or those who are like you, but to spread your wings because we also have something called climate change. And if you cluster too many things, you don't know what phenomenon is going to happen. So why don't we look at developing economies that have the right business environment? And I insist on that. And see if we can diversify some supply chains there. So we build resilience. Some of these have been left out during the first wave of globalization. So we can build resilience whilst being inclusive. And we're calling that re-globalization. So that's the thesis we put forward. So we can kill two birds with one stone. Thank you. Uh, President Lagarde, the last time I saw you, everybody wanted to ask me about the next rate increase. We're not going to do that today either. We were in Jackson Hole, and you were looking at a reaffirmation of how we do research, how we look forward, how we prosecute economics across the absolute original experiment that is Europe. And it is a very unique ECB, particularly compared to so many other central banks. Give us the state of play you see now of a Europe, yes, years now into a war, but far more the back and forth. And I do want you to touch, we'll talk about this later, I want you to touch on uh, migration here, but it, could please give us the growth outlook that you see out five years and the prescription Europe needs to do now. Well, thank you so much, Tom. And let me first of all um, regret but fully understand and appreciate why Kristalina is not with us, invited by the, His Majesty to attend the opening of the Parliament of Morocco. Yeah. I think it's a great honor and should just reverberate on the quality of the institution and, if I may say, its depth and the depth of its bench, because it gives us the pleasure of not having another man 
excuse me, but having another woman. So that's a real test of success. You're looking yeah, at me. You're, okay. Just... you're okay. <laughs> All right, back, back to your question, because that's, that's what you really want to hear from me. I would like to pick up on uh, where Gita was and, and to tell you how we are um, seeing the situation now. And I, I put really the emphasis of now after the three mega crises that we have gone through in the last three years and the most recent developments that we haven't seen the end of and which will have in addition to the human toll and the horrible developments that will take place that will have economic consequences. And it feels very much like, and I want to point to my notes because I, I listed them and I want to mention them for you, what I would call the multiple moving parts and we're just not yet too sure where the chips will come down. And I would list in my moving parts the unwinding of large previous shocks. And Gozi has alluded to some. There are multiple previous shocks from the disruption to the supply bottlenecks to the immense volatility of energy prices to the pent-up demand against the restricted supply and all of that happening in a very abrupt and sudden way. So that's number one. Number two, something which is affected by lag time or time lag, whatever you call it. And I'm not here talking about monetary policy. I'm here talking about the adjustment of wages to inflation. And there is clearly in everybody, in all central bankers' mind, the fear of the second round effect. Is it happening? Is it likely to happen? Are we at the peak and are we now going to see declining wage increases returning to real wage a la pre-COVID? That's another moving part. The third uh, moving part is what I would call the, the strong. You know, we did 450 basis points hike in 15 months which is a huge, unprecedented increase. And this is what I call the strong but lagged policies. We haven't seen the end of it yet. We're seeing tightening of financing conditions like it has never happened before. We know that there is some more in the pipeline and how it is going to impact our economies, what, how it will have deflationary impact, disinflationary impact uh, in, in our region is also to be seen. And the final one, you know, sort of really uh, ball in the air is the structural reforms that will come out of all that. There is what Ngozi you called the, uh, did you say re-globalization? Mm -hmm. I would call it probably consistent with a good fight against climate change. The near-shoring, not reshoring, not French-shoring, but reducing the distance, having a better handle and control over your supply chain and the logistic and transportation. That's just one example. I think the labor market is also a case in point where we will be seeing structural reforms mm -hmm. and where the people who are joining the market now have different aspirations, different expectations in, in, than what we had, but you know, let alone the two grandmothers at the table here. Uh, all of you, the Z generation, will not want the same thing. So those are all these balls in the air. We're not exactly sure how they're going to land, but certainly we all have to focus on our policies as far as the European Central Bank is concerned. As I've said before, right. our aim, 
Our mission is to return inflation to 2% medium term, and we will. And it is happening as we speak, and we will hang on to that, be steady, long enough, and ready to right. do more if necessary. Uh, this sets up Joyce Chang perfectly. President Lagarde, and I say this with great respect for Bill Rhodes for years at Citigroup, do you ever feel like you're central banker to the world? I'm talking to you, Christine. Oh, to me. Are, are you, do you ever feel like you're central banker to the world? Central banker. You bring to the it world? over from the ECB over to the major central banks, feeling like they have a profound effect on EM and the rest. You talk about the monetary policy movements that we saw. Look, I think central bank governors, presidents, form a community. They're all driven by the same purpose. They have different mandates eventually, but I think their mission is to procure or restore price stability so that economic actors of all sorts, consumers, investors, savers, spenders, mm -hmm. can actually anticipate what is likely to happen. And we have to do that in intelligent coordination with the fiscal authorities. Right. Joyce, I'm so happy you're here. You gave us a bond market that we don't want to talk about. We're doing a debate on the global economy. You have a framework with Bob Michael at JP Morgan of a two and a half inflation adjusted 10 year rate of a five and a half 10 year yield out at some point. For those of you not versed in the world of Joyce Chang, that's uh, stressful. And you and I talked about Barry Eichengreen's paper at Jackson Hole, which is a debt walkthrough of EM. And I'd like you to fold the constraints we have on getting to a more optimistic and better growth over to the challenges that we see with emerging market debt. No, thanks so much. And it's just wonderful to be here with you, Tom, and with Gita, Christina, and with Ngozi. Well, we do think that the great moderation is over. Um, we had put out a target, 2.5% real yields. We, we thought it could be a sort of a medium-term target. Take five years. Oh, her um, mic is off. Okay, well, we expected this. There you go. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Just, is that better, everyone? That's better. Okay, great. No, so I, 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 think, I think part of the problem, Tom, is you know, the bond vigilantes are back. The great moderation is over, and the focus has come back to the fiscal and debt sustainability, and there's actually more talk about that at some of the market meetings than even about the soft landing and no recession scenario. And so I think the cost, you know, there's the resilience, but then there's the cost of that resilience that's really coming into market focus right now. So when we put out, you know, real yields, we think there'd be two and a half percent. We were at negative one percent. And people asked me, how long do you think it could take to get there? I said, well, maybe five years. Um, but, you know, we're practically there um, already. And I think, you know, this is kind of coming at an inconvenient time. You have the 30% increase in treasury supply on long duration at a point where, you know, the Fed's not buying, the banks are not gaining deposits, the institutional demand isn't there. And that has very clearly um, put the focus back on the debt dynamics, the debt sustainability, and the fiscal debt, and the cost of servicing the debt 
um, given the size of the fiscal deficit. Um, and the focus isn't on the emerging markets so much as it is on the advanced economies, particularly on the United States right now. I mean, in this period, um, I think EM has been, um, you know, very resilient. But I mean, but um, we've also seen um, limping along. <laughs> I, you know, fractured my foot, so <laughs> relate to that. Uh, um, the limping along as well, where the medium-term growth, you know, does not look as optimistic. But we are, um, you know, once again, you know, getting a focus back on whether the financing is going to be more problematic. And it's hard to talk about emerging markets in one block because there's clearly the frontier market countries, and then there is the, um, you know, EMX China, the middle income countries, which have done a very good job. They started hiking um, a lot earlier. We think, you know, there's probably 150 basis points of easing they can do between now and the end of next year. Um, but you, you do have the debt dynamics um, that are very much um, back in focus and the debt service. Um, but that's not just an emerging markets problem, it's an advanced mm -hmm. economy problem as well. It's interesting. Gita, I, I want you to fold this in. And Gita well knows there's the blue book, the green book, the brown book. And I wish you'd print them still instead of just digital, because I actually love the appendices and all this, the great work of your team at the, the IMF. But I'm going to go all Tobias Adrian on you right now. I listen to what Joyce is saying, and I listen to what I see on the Bloomberg screen. And the bond market is speaking about this growth constraint we have. On a Hayekian basis, how do we clear this system to move on to a better place? So, Tom, the bond market is reflecting many things. For one, it's come to accept the fact that interest rates will have to be higher for longer, something policymakers have been, been clear about, but it's taken some time to get into the market. But the other aspect, and this is the novel piece that Joyce pointed to, is we are seeing some pricing in of fiscal risks which is usually unheard of when you think of the US market. You have a large amount of debt being issued at a time when you have quantitative tightening being done by central banks, mm -hmm. at a time when Japan's rates have gone up and therefore their demand for US treasuries are somewhat weaker. In that environment, you, what we're seeing is pressure on yields at the long horizon. Right? So right now, there is a huge demand for cash, which is on the short end of it. But we're seeing a lot more volatility on the long end. And I want to take that to a kind of step back and make a broader point here, which is that if you look kind of around the world, particularly through the US, but other, many other countries, we're seeing a looming mismatch between the spending needs of countries and the resources that they will have to pay for it. Now, there was a decade after the global financial crisis when you know, that was less of a problem because you could borrow at ultra-low interest rates and that was not an issue. But now you're borrowing at much higher rates and you have weak growth prospects. So this is a difficult place for countries to be. There's a challenge, particularly for emerging and developing economies who have, uh, you know, important development goals that they have to meet to meet the climate transition. But I think it is an important time for governments to think about how are they going to pay for all these spending needs without relying as much as they did on borrowing? And it goes, yeah, I look at this and I look back at, at your wonderful article in Foreign Affairs. I, I can't say enough about it, for folks. And there are these phrases from another time and place, GATT, most favored nation status. And now we have, as you 
write about almost a blockism from pre-World War II. What is going to be the process that WTO can provide to get us to a better place? I'm very, here in Marrakesh, I'm very much listening for the processes recommended to jumpstart us out five years to better trade situation. What would it be? Well, thank you, Tom. I think the one thing we don't recommend, uh, let me start with that, is more fragmented trade. Um, because if we have the world, if we have trade fragmenting and people just trading with each other in, in, in blocks of people similar to themselves, uh, this fragmentation, we've done some work, Gita and the IMF has done some work that shows that the, the real losses to real GDP, global GDP in the long term are substantial. 5% in our case, they had 7%. And for emerging markets and developing countries, it would be in double digits. So what we, and I will not stop saying this, it will become boring, because we think that any fragmentation, uh, if any, pro, if fragmentation spreads, then definitely we will not be able to get back on the good path. Mm. What I think we should look at to get us back in, 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 in terms of trade, we need to avoid more protectionism. Uh, we need to avoid uh, people retreating and thinking that, look, uh, things are going so badly that I have to make sure that I rely as much on myself as possible. Um, because we've seen that global trade has, has rendered benefits in the long term. For the past 75 years, we've seen people lifted out of poverty due to trade. So let's not throw away what has worked in the past, but let's try and make it better. That's why we talked about the re-globalization. So let's avoid protectionism and putting barriers. The free flow of trade is what we need if we really want our economies to move. I think the second thing I want to say is that there are green shoots within trade, and that's what we're looking at at the WTO. We look at trade, and even though you know, our recent forecast has downgraded the goods trade, the volume of goods trade from 1.7% to 0.8, which is quite a dramatic downgrade and goes along with all the new pessimism that is emerging. But within that, there's something very interesting happening, and that is the growth of digital trade and digitally delivered services trade, which is growing at 8% per annum. Out of $32 trillion of trade, we've got $25 trillion, that is goods, $12 trillion services. And of the $12 trillion, $4 trillion almost, is the digitally delivered services. So this is growing so fast, we're saying, what can we do to make sure that we, we foster this trade that we make sure micro, medium, and small enterprises and women-owned enterprises that are the most, that are the ones using this trade the most, that we remove barriers in their way and that we put a level playing field so that this trade can grow even more. So that's the green shoot. And I right. think as we have all this pessimism, we should look at some of these optimistic uh, areas. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions 
alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Uh, with the time we've got, we've got 21 minutes left, folks. I'm trying to get an extension right now. We'll see if we, we get that. Ngozi, I'm going to come back to you uh, at the end of this effort uh, to speak of the huge opportunity of trade within Africa, and, and particularly when I look at the span of the IMF here from Nairobi 50 years ago over to, to where we are now. Uh, Christine Lagarde, when I first met you, uh, you had just been at LSC Square ago, Dancing. Eh? <laughs> it was a few years ago. And I, I, I think what's so important here is we have institutional forces and uh, Ngozi, within her wonderful article, really emphasizes institutional strength. I know you've written about it as well, but few have been in the trenches of actual trade policy like you have with your service to the Republic of France. What has to be the new trade policy for the nations of Europe and for that matter, wealthy nations worldwide? What needs to be the new trade initiative that gets us to global economic growth as Ngozi frames it. Thank you, Tom, for that. I believe, you're catching me a bit of off guard because you take me back to my days as a trade <laughs> minister. Um, I would say two things. One is implement the directives and the regulatory frameworks that exist in order to free up the providing of services throughout the region. There is a service directive which has been around for years and years, of which maybe 60% is actually implemented. If only the whole directive was implemented without reservations, without caveats, without carve-out, I think we will really lift growth in a significant way, whether in relation to goods or in relation to digital, because services are largely now digitally supported. That would be, I say, number one. Number two, I think that if investment, and granted, currently the financing of investment is difficult, but if investments were to be focused on the green transition, plus the transition towards a digital economy, I think there would also be a significant upside as a result of that. And to pick up on Ngozi, I think in the digital world, the two things that need to be improved. One is we need a better governance. We have seen one trial after another one, criminal or otherwise, that the digital world can lead to abuses, including in financial services. So governance is one where we need to make progress and we need to make progress collectively. Number two, and the European Central Bank spends a lot of effort and time on that, we also central bankers, the holders of currency, we need to move to the digital area and we need to be ready to launch CBDC, for us it's digital euro, mm -hmm. in relatively short order so that we can make it safe and have a monetary anchor that has digital right. traits as well. Joyce, all of this is wonderful and I think of like Benoit Correa and what they're doing at BIS, Raphael Auer and Bitcoin and the rest has been you know, really thought provoking for me. Except then I have to look at my Bloomberg to see where the bid is on name the piece of paper. 
I bought the Austria 97 year. I thought that would be a good thing. I'm down 70%. That's worked out. But, but the, the fact is, with all of these economic thoughts, we go back to the screen at JP Morgan that shows a bid and an ask. How deep are these markets? And do you worry about jump conditions? What Peter Orzag would say, we get off the glide paths we're normal, and that we get, not to, not inflammatory crisis, but that we are in enough of a liquidity issue where there's jump conditions versus the smoothness we're addicted to. No, I, I think, uh, you know, look, higher for longer is also harder for longer for emerging markets. So there's sort of two answers to that question. There's first, that you have this crowding out problem to begin with. I mean, if you can be in cash and get 5.5% or 6% from a U.S. corporate bond, and you have an emerging markets local currency index that has a yield of 6.7%, then you're going to see savings you know, go back into you know, safe assets rather than to other places. And that makes the challenge a lot harder for many of the issues that we've talked about this week, how you get climate financing, how you fund um, the uh, debt for the distressed countries. Um, it's just made the bar that much um, higher to begin with. And then you have the plumbing question, the second part that you asked about. And you've had a fundamental shift in the market. Um, you know, it's gone electronic. The primary dealers are not able to necessarily absorb, um, you know, the, the size of these um, you know, increased auctions as well. So you have a market that overshoots. And so even though you've seen, you know, really good management um, in policies from emerging markets countries, that whole issue of financing and how you use the capital markets becomes much more mm -hmm. complicated when you can just get such high yields um, on short duration and cash. And so, you know, a lot of the dilemma, I think, that comes out that's then complicated by the liquidity question. Um, that um, you get these overshoots and market volatility where you get these surges in the, in the moves as well. And so I think it is a much more complicated um, you know, environment that there's the really good management that has been part of it. And we've seen the real resilience um, you know, in the emerging markets countries. And then there's some of the realities of crowding out you know, alternative investments, and then the liquidity considerations in this type of market for what can actually be transacted for some of these longer-term goals. I, I, I look at this, Gita, and, you know, with your work at Harvard University before the International Monetary Fund, and I look at Jason Furman with you yesterday with Martin Wolf teaching a small economics course up at Harvard, which is ageless and timeless with Martin Feldstein and others, and then I think of a textbook like ManQ. Did you have ManQ as your first macro effort? What was your well, first textbook? My first textbook, this was back in India, so no, I didn't have ManQ. Okay, well, maybe they have ManQ in India as well, we'll see. But to go with Greg ManQ, it's a simpler textbook 30 years ago. And you've talked to me about the complexities now that filter across all of this and it's struggled to get to a better economic growth. Define the complexities you're focused on right now. So in terms of uh, policy making, which is a lot of what Greg also goes into in his textbook, which is looking at how does monetary policy work and fiscal policy work, I'd like to think that there was a time during you know, the, the great moderation, but also after the GFC, when it was somewhat easier to be a central banker than it is now for President Lagarde, and it was somewhat easier to be a finance minister than it is now for many finance ministers. And why is that? We should, one is 
We're now in a world with way more supply shocks than we've been used to. It's a much more volatile environment. And therefore, the decisions and trade-offs are much more complicated. And how, you know, how are you going to bring down inflation while at the same time making sure that employment doesn't collapse? That's going to be a much harder decision. So the, you know, the era kind of low forever, let's look through supply shocks, all of that has changed. And I don't think uh, you know, President Lagarde can come in, but Christine can come in which is, you know, which you look through supply shocks at this time. I think that's a, that's a good question. If you're a, a finance minister, you're no longer being able to borrow at dirt cheap interest rates. We give the example of the US, which is the safe asset issuer, right? If you look at debt servicing costs, which is the amount of revenue, government revenue, that goes to pay interest payments on debt, that was 8% in 2019. It's projected to go up to 14% in 2028. 20, mm. That's a combination of debt growing, but also the higher interest rates that you're paying on it. That makes it much harder. That's the US. And we're looking at other countries and other emerging markets who are borrowing at much higher rates, even though the spreads have not grown up that much. The fact that their basic interest rates that they're paying are much higher is, is making life much harder for them. And then, of course, low-income countries, we're looking at interest payments, debt servicings of 20% of revenue. So much harder the trade-offs from being a finance minister. And all of this is happening in environment for all of us with geopolitical tensions and fragmentation. I I mean, I'm with Ngozi that we have to work very hard to lean against decoupling in the world. But I also do think it's a time that countries will need to adapt to the changes that are happening. There are real changes that are going on. We have 3,000 new trade restrictions that were put in, 20, put in place in 2022, which is three times the number that was put in 2019. There's all kinds of tit-for-tat reactions in, in trade policy. When, you know, when the US or when China or when the European Union puts in place a subsidy measure, there's a 73% chance that one of the other countries will retaliate within 12 months. So we're in that world, which means Countries will have to adapt to this newer landscape. You'll have to try to diversify. You'll have, instead of, besides just, uh, you know, mm. de-risking your financial, making sure you have uh, risk, you've contained the risks in the financial system, you have to look at containing the risks in your supply chains. You will, countries will have to turn towards domestic resource mobilization because they're going to have to figure out, get the old business done, which is raise tax revenues. So. I think it's a much more challenging environment to get policy done. And let's not forget, you know, if you go back and think of the origins of economics and back to Adam Smith, and all of us have grown up on that tradition too, that was done at a time when there were only human beings and human interactions. And now we're entering the world of artificial intelligence and all the complications that come with that. So mm -hmm. I think that also leads to a fundamental rethink of how we think right. of economics. President Lagarde, you are furiously taking notes over there. Would you comment on this, please? <laughs> I've got about eight ways to go here, but I'll let you choose which way to go. But I always try to take notes when there are intelligent people around me, and they are. Um, I will follow up from where Gita left it in terms of how more difficult it is today than maybe it was. And, and we tend to look at the world thinking, oh, it was so much better before. 
I think what's critically important is that we have an open mind and we have the humility to accept that we don't know it all, number one. The instruments that we have been using need to change and evolve and adjust and integrate new components that we haven't had on our plate, and I think that applies to models, uh, that applies also to our communication, uh, that applies to many factors that certainly have an impact on our job as central bankers. And if, if, if we do all that, I'm sure that we can get to where our mission drives us to be, and I'm not going to repeat myself, but it's, it's something that is embedded in the DNA of central bankers, which is that price stability obsession that we have in order to facilitate mm -hmm. the unleashing of economic forces for the better. I would just mention one thing, which is time management. I mean, the whole debate about transitory team, not transitory team and all that, is in a way a reflection of our relation to the passing of time. And the movement that we have observed more recently from our audiences, whether it's people in the trade, analysts, observers, but also the general public, which expect instant results, instant gratification, in the face of what monetary policy can do, in the face of how market forces respond, which has always an element of time lag and requires patience. And to actually be able to communicate that and come up with the narrative that will be convincing enough so that those who determine inflation expectations, for instance, appreciate that patience will be needed, that it's not going to just happen instantly as you, know, you move from one game to the other. I think it's something that is right. a challenge for all of us policymakers. Uh, Director General, 50 years ago, uh, the IMF it's not that it was lost, but it was looking for a new path in 1973. And at Nairobi, Johan Vitevin discovered that path. It was a new place for the IMF to go. And here we are in Africa, at Marrakesh, looking for a new path. And in conversation after conversation, the great opportunity is Africa. The statistics are there, you have them beautifully in your essays and your work at WTO, frankly, before that, your historic work on corruption. Tell us the opportunity in Africa as we find economic growth. Well, um, maybe that's a good note to end on since we're on the continent. But I do want to build on what Gita and Christine have said on the fact that it's a very challenging environment. I think the reason we preach so much and try to remind people that 75% of world trade still takes place on WTO terms. Mm -hmm. So let's remember that on most favored nation terms, 75%. So that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, but yes, there are emerging signs of trouble. So I, I, I really agree with that. And I think that those who will lose out the most are the poorer countries, which is why it is incumbent on us. We are here in Africa. There are many countries that are debt distressed. Africa's share of world trade is 3% and actually fell below that during the, the pandemic. Um, and we're building this beautiful African continental free trade area that you refer to, 54 countries, the largest in terms of the number of countries, which offers hope that Africa, if it's able to remove the barriers 
can trade better with itself because intra-African trade is anywhere from 16 to 20%, and trade better with the world, and this will help to lift up incomes within the continent. However, this will only happen if we can add value to the products. We can't trade the same things to each other. You know, we export raw materials and commodities. But the hope here is creating a large market of 1.4 billion people. We, the hope here is the young age of the population. Uh, we, Europe is aging. Uh, the US is kind of in the middle. US has been receiving a lot of immigration, so they are smart, or they used to be smart about it. Um, I don't know. Do you care to expand on that? <laughs> China is aging. You know, so Japan. the action, Japan is aging. Uh, so the action is here. Uh, we have the young people. We can, the productivity, if we harness that resource, mm. uh, we can see productivity gains that are quite substantial. So those are two things. How do we use our human resources and harness our young people so they're not jumping into the Sahara or the Mediterranean to go somewhere else? How do we add value to our products? And there's a chance now. You know, we have some critical supply chains here, critical raw materials and minerals that the world needs if it's going to reduce carbon emissions. Why we, we should add value to those products here rather than exporting them. So there's a lot of hope here for green energy, green hydrogen, critical minerals, add value to our products here, create jobs on the continent. We have young people who are very savvy with fintech and the tech, uh, the tech sector. You can see the more I talk, the more excited I get. So yes, I think the future is here. But we have a lot of work to do ourselves. Nobody's going to hand this to us. Mm -hmm. We have to be, you know, governance is an issue you talked about, yes, better. But we also are suffering from problems we did not create. We didn't create the pandemic. We didn't uh, create, uh, well, we have the debt. And you know, what happens outside right. has a great yeah. impact on that. So we also need to have that support to, to manage the debt situation that the countries are in, sort that out, give some fiscal space to countries so they can actual, actually spend on education, health, and the things that right. matter, and on the young people. I was going to give you the last word, but I got the Lagarde this. Yes, it's in it's French when she does it. Tom, it's for a microsecond. Because Please, I want, take I want more to, than a microsecond. I want to bring Nadia Feta's voice here. She was supposed to be on yes. the panel, and she's not. Minister of Finance of Morocco. Minister of Finance of Morocco. She's in Parliament uh, for the first session. And I think following up from what Ngozi said, she would probably mention that in a few years, probably a short while, actually, the first entirely made in Morocco electronic vehicle will be produced and, we, and will be shipped outside of Tangier, which is an extraordinary platform out there. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Dopina, the final word to you, please. <laughs> We've covered a, a lot of uh, ground here. I think we, let's, let's try and end on a, on a positive note, which is one, in line with what Joyce said, it is absolutely the case that emerging markets and developing countries have demonstrated remarkable resilience over the last few years. And it is an outcome of having put in place good macro policies, like central bank independence, inflation targeting frameworks. So I think a takeaway is that when you do the right things, you can build the resilience 
in your economies. And that is a lesson to be taken away and expanded on for all countries. Secondly, I would just say we need to get the unfinished business done. It's always hard to get structural reforms done. It's always been hard to strengthen the WTO even more. It's been hard to rely on domestic resources and through raising revenue to meet your needs uh, for countries. But this is the moment when countries will have to take difficult decisions, just given the environment we live in. Um, I can just add um, a quick point on just the local currency markets and the importance of the local currency markets for the financing because one reason why emerging markets assets have actually been less volatile than the advanced economies was you know, during taper tantrum there was about $700 billion of portfolio flows. But if you look at from 2021 to now, you've had about $200 billion. So you actually look at the way that emerging markets has performed in the midst of this bond market sell-off. It's been quite good. And when you go back to your point and Barry Eichmann's point on the debt, it is, our, is there going to just have to be a greater dependency on those local currency markets? Thank you. And to all well, of you, thank you. Question. To Dr. Gorgieva, thank you so much. <laughs> the countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.